Hello, and welcome back to the Grace Downtown podcast. We're here a little earlier than normal this week. Don't freak out. We're just trying to get everything done as far in advance of Thanksgiving as we can. So, today, we're bringing you the recording of last week's Cultural Intelligence Forum with Reverend Erwin Ince speaking on the topic of embracing the other. Pastor Ince ended the talk with a lengthy Q&A where he went into even more depth on some of the topics presented. We're not presenting that here today, mainly because it would have pushed it well over the two-hour mark, and we really want to make sure that the things we're providing you to listen to are actually listenable in your day-to-day life. So, I hope the talk is exciting or challenging or thought-provoking or encouraging to you in some way, shape, or form. We'll be back next week with talk two out of the three talks that Reverend Tom Gibbs presented at this year's fall retreat. But until then, here's Erwin. Well, good, good evening to all of you. Um, I am grateful to be here. I'm thankful for uh, the opportunity to come and share with you tonight on this topic of cultural intelligence to kind of uh, help uh, the conversation in this ministry here at, uh, at Grace DC. And um, I, uh, uh, the only thing that uh, I've got issue with is I actually forgot both my handkerchief and my sweat rag. So I get kind of animated. And so if I start like popping off, you know, at the, you know, yeah, just somebody help me out and give me something. Um, but uh, so I, what I want to do, what I want to do, because I hope, I hope our time tonight is going to be fruitful, uh, is going to be challenging, uh, uh, um, encouraging, maybe even somewhat disturbing at points. Uh, that's okay, too. Um, but I want to talk about kind of how I got here to really um, the, the content and what what I want to share uh, with with you all tonight. I've, um, as Glenn said, I'm pastoring City of Hope. Thank you, brother. Uh, City of Hope uh, Presbyterian Church in Columbia, Maryland. And uh, my heartbeat, my heartbeat in ministry, my heartbeat in the church is for the church to look like its place in all of its diversity, uh, that, um, that in Christ, the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down to sep- the things that separate us from one another ethnically, culturally, uh, gender, socioeconomics, that, that Christ is uniting people uh, in his name. And that should be reflected in the local church. And so that's kind of my passion in ministry. And so what I've been doing is uh, pursuing uh, a doctor of ministry degree uh, with Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. And uh, what I'm sharing tonight is kind of, I'm kind of midway through my dissertation. And my dissertation work is on, um, simply put, kind of identity formation in diverse churches. And so I got to look at this issue of, of culture, cultural diversity, and cultural intelligence. And so, uh, and so, as I said, I'm kind of right in the middle where I've been doing a lot of reading, uh, a lot of comparing uh, authors and what they've got to say on a variety of, uh, of subjects around this issue of culture and ethnicity. Uh, and then I'll be moving 
in the beginning of next year into kind of more of the, the data mining and doing some interviews and all of that kind of stuff. And so, and so this is really kind of the compilation of what I've been reading. Um, and there's going to be some practical stuff there at the end, but um, uh, and I'm hoping that it's, uh, I'm, I'm not trying to make it simplistic, but simple. I'm hoping that it's not overly uh, academic and far away from where uh, we may be. And so the other thing I am requesting is you feel free to interrupt me uh, and ask a question. We'll have time hopefully at the end. My goal is not necessarily to get through every single solitary slide that I've put uh, together. Uh, if we if we get some good questions and even pushback is is okay as well. All right, do we have a, do we have a deal with that? All right, good. And we can you can talk to me if you feel like it. So here here we are, right? Cultural intelligence, uh, embracing the other, and I want to talk. I want to touch on tonight four uh, four areas. Maybe is it better if I stand on the side? Am I blocking kind of y'all y'all's vision? Is that up? Okay, I'll stay up here then. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so right, four four areas that I want to uh, cover, and uh, you know, uh, so this is kind of what I call a primer on cultural intelligence. Uh, the four areas that I'm going to talk about really can be expanded and can be individual topics themselves over uh, the course of time, and so I'm hoping to generate really generate thoughts, questions, intrigue. On the topic, and so, uh, so here, here's what we're going to talk about. These the four four C's. I'm I'm usually a three point preacher, but I got four tonight. Uh, uh, four C's: uh, content, uh, and what I mean by content is is actually just a definition. What is cultural intelligence? What do we mean when we when we say cultural intelligence? The second C is community, and under that second C, community, um, uh, we've all got kind of a definition of what community is, but what I'm talking about specifically is a particular theological focus when we talk about this word uh, uh, community if, if we, that we have to understand if we actually want to grow in our cultural intelligence. And so it's not that there is no other theological foundation in the other stuff, but this is a particular aspect uh, of community that we really have to, I think, get a grasp on that's, uh, that's a, a, an underpinning kind of for growing, uh, in cultural intelligence. And then third, we're going to put a spotlight on, on culture. That's good because we're talking about cultural intelligence and and how right and how culture forms us in ways that we may be even unaware of. Uh, and then, lastly, we kind of dive into connection, and that's more of a um, uh, you might say a practical um, uh, a practical topic where I'll be kind of looking at a couple of case studies on uh, the area of of diversity and, and cultural. Intelligence is kind of the brass tacks, uh, the underground day-to-day -day challenges of pursuing uh, cultural intelligence. And so, so let's. Um, oh yeah, I should have been doing that, right? <laughs> yeah, we gotta keep talking. Um, yeah, this should brace us to. So, so if we were to diagram these four C's, here's how I would, I would diagram it. I'd put content there at the, at the middle. It'd be kind of concentric circles. Um, and you can argue about which circle goes where, but it would be content and then community and then 
um, culture, and then lastly, connection. And so the point of kind of giving this visual and this diagram is it's, it's all integrated. It, it's not bifurcated as you got one over here and the other over here, a third over here, and the four. they all kind of feed off of uh, each other and they all come into play when we're talking about cultural intelligence uh, and embracing the other. And so, first thing, right, content. What is CQ? And this is, uh, this banner is the banner of the Presbyterian Church in America. Is Grace DC is in the PCA. I'm in the PCA. And, and so, uh, uh, Glenn, unbeknownst to him, just kind of led me into this, uh, this first way I want to get at the, the content C. Um, with uh, the talk about this denomination we're in as a church that's wrestling with repentance. Um, he said he mentioned to you the, the overture that came to our General Assembly this past summer down in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where uh, a couple of pastors in, uh, in uh, churches in M Mississippi brought uh, a personal resolution on uh, repentance for sins committed during the civil rights period, saying that some of the churches that um, that that came out of the mainline Presbyterian denomination and formed the PCA, some of those churches were uh, had had really were involved in committing uh, sinful acts towards African Americans during the uh, the civil rights period, and they were calling on uh, our denomination saying we we say that we are the continuing church uh, we say that you know that's our roots are are in uh, American Presbyterianism and so so we, we want to call our denomination to repentance on this and as Glenn mentioned it is being uh, referred to next year's assembly and so what that means is that uh, there is um, there is a resolution that's coming that he said Potomac Presbytery will be dealing with it this coming Saturday. Uh, January we'll vote on it. You'll vote on it, but it'll be presented. Yeah, we're going to present it. Okay, well, so uh, Chesapeake Presbytery, where I am, we dealt with it last week, Tuesday. We presented it. We, um, we debated it for a good hour, um, and we we passed it, which means that our presbytery is going to send it to the assembly for adoption next year. So I, I, I bring all that up to say there are words in there that that uh, that 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 were an area of focus in the debate that I'm going to share with you. Um, and 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 here here they are. If you can't read them, I will read it. So here's the point. Part of one the reason. This is being referred to next year is we said, well, if we're going to repent, then there needs to be language that says this is kind of what the fruit of repentance looks like. It's not just an action of repenting, that there needs to be something that that comes after that, that says we're being called to do something to demonstrate that we're actually repentant. And so this is one of the paragraphs and forgive me for the whereas is, but that's how we do overtures. <laughs> So here's, this is one paragraph on the second page of it, and, uh, and you'll see why I bring it up. It says, whereas God has once more given the PCA a gracious opportunity to show the beauty, grace, and power of the gospel of Jesus Christ through confession and through the fruits of repentance, such as 
clarity that racism is a sin requiring formative and corrective discipline, growing into cultural intelligence regarding minority cultures, establishing interracial, interracial friendships and partnerships inside and outside our denomination, renewing our church's commitment to develop minority leadership at the congregational, presbytery, and denominational levels, and encouraging a denomination-wide vision and commitment to a more racially and ethnically diverse church in the next 20 years. Right? And so I bring this up because that, that growing into cultural intelligence regarding minority cultures was a major issue in our debate. Um, there, there was an amendment offered to strike that language from it. And part of the reason why is was that I don't know what that means. I don't know what cultural intelligence is. I don't know what we're being called to do with that language. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, there's, it's almost like there was, he was expressing this fear, like this is, this is, talk about cultural intelligence, this is just like being, this is politically correct kind of language as opposed to kind of gospel driven, um, language that we should be pursuing. And so, uh, and so, right, the reality is people really don't know what cultural intelligence is. So, so here's what it is. <laughs> uh, the language stayed in and we pass it as is. Um, really, cultural intelligence is, uh, is about loving the other. I mean, simply put, it is, it is the second part of what Jesus says. When he asks, what's the greatest commandment in the law? He says, right, to love the Lord your God, with everything, heart, soul, mind, strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Culture, all cultural intelligence is, is loving our neighbors. Loving the other. And the question is, right, how do we, how do we react? How do we, how do we respond when we encounter the other? And I use capital O, other. Uh, and, 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 and by that I mean just people, right, who are not like us. Whether it be ethnically, whether it be socioeconomically, whether it be uh, uh, gender, geographically, racially, whatever the case may be, how do we respond when we engage the other? Capital O. So it's important to declare that cultural intelligence is actually about love. That's what it's about uh, from start to finish. The motive is love and the goal is love. It's not about learning it's not, it's not about learning. How do I navigate through differences? How do I just kind of tolerate you or get along with you? It is about how do I love you <laughs> and how do you love me as others? It's about uh, David Livermore as a book, Cultural Intelligence, that I've borrowed a lot of stuff from. And he says it's about becoming multicultural people. And by that, he means multicultural in the sense of loving people from other cultures. You have to talk about love when you talk about cultural intelligence, because when you start talking about becoming something, you're talking about kind of changing <laughs> from what you were into something else, adapting, an adaptation, uh, adapting our message, he says, adapting our message, adapting our curriculum and our programs is one thing, but adapting ourselves, he says, is a far greater challenge that we have. And so this is what 
This is what uh, cultural intelligence is. It's deeper than diversity. The goal is not, <laughs> the goal is not diversity. The goal is not, um, oh look, we've got people from all kind of walks of life in here. The goal, because you can have diversity without love. The goal is love and embrace. And so, um, striving to be people, as I say, striving to be people who are bathed in the love of God in Jesus Christ, whose heart is to love our neighbors. That's what cultural intelligence is. And so, this is, uh, so, with that as, and we could say, right, I could say that that's really a theological focus too, right? But I want to, I want to talk specifically about the second C, community, uh, as a particular theological focus that I want to emphasize when it comes to cultural intelligence. And so the fact that cultural intelligence is about loving the other naturally flows out of this second C. And so here's the thing, right? Um, when we, so here's, here's a question for you, right? What does, what is the first thing that the Bible says about humanity? What's the first thing that the Bible says about people? Page one of the book. Right? Created in the image of God, right? That, that, that that is the first declaration, the first thing we hear about people is God saying, let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. It's the first declaration um, that God says. Um, right? Uh, Genesis 1, 27. And, and that, that drives, that actually drives our understanding of what it means to be a human being. Right? For Christians, it drives our understanding that we, that our dignity, our sense of worth, our value, our inherent value is found in the fact that God has declared we bear his image. We are literally the image of God. We're not God, but we are his image. So we readily think about being made in the image of God. Um, as, as Christians, we really think about it in terms of each individual person bearing dignity and value and, and worth, right? Our, our dignity is rooted in this fact that God has, uh, uh, Richard Pratt in his book, Design for Dignity, says God is determined to make us creatures of incomparable value and dignity. It's who we are. Because everybody is made in the image of God and because this image defines what it means to be human, People, says uh, Verna Harrison in her book, uh, God's Many Splendored Image, she says, people are fundamentally equal, regardless of the differences in wealth, education, and social status. And we, right, we can resonate with that. that, that that's true. However, it is critical, I think, and here's my point, to realize that when God created humanity, he actually created us to bear his image in community. Not simply as individuals. That we were created to bear his image in community. It was about humanity together collectively being the image of God. Not just any single solitary person. Let me go to this next slide. So here's where I'm going to get one of my favorite theologians. 
Dutch theologian Herman Bavink. You don't have to. I, I told Daniel I was going to give you guys a recommended reading list on stuff, but you don't have to go out and buy Reform Dogmatics by her, four volumes. You don't have to buy it if you don't want to. But if you do, you know, uh, at least buy this volume, volume two, God and Creation. <laughs> what does it mean for human beings to be made in the image of God? We were hardwired to commune with others. And I love this quote. So this is where I get kind of little theologically kind of deep and using this, this language that, that we, need to, we need to, I think we need to grasp, hold up. So here's what Bavink says. He says, the image of God is much too rich for it to be fully realized in a single human being, however richly gifted that human being may be. It can only be somewhat unfolded in its depths and riches in her humanity counting billions of members. He's saying, when you think about God, and you think about the immensity of God, and you think about him in his nature, that it is, it is, it's too, his image is too rich to just be comprised fully in one single person. And I would expand it to say that his image is too rich to be fully realized in one ethnicity or one race. This imaging in God, God in community, it includes imaging him together across our differences. And even, right, even our differences are no accident. God is the one who created our differences. So here's the second part of what, uh, what he says. Here's, he says, only humanity in, in its entirety, as one complete organism, summed up under a single head, and he's talking about Jesus Christ there, spread out over the whole earth, what he means, doing what God has commanded us to do in Genesis 1, to fill the earth, right, and have uh, dominion, as a prophet proclaiming the truth of God, as priest dedicating itself to God, as ruler controlling the earth and the whole creation, only it is the fully finished image, the most telling and striking likeness of God. He says, you want to know what it means to image God. You need to look at the entirety of redeemed humanity under Jesus Christ together. You get a picture of that past, present, and future all together. Now you're getting close to, to realizing what it means for humanity to be the image of God. And why? Why is that? It's because right, we, we image God this way because God himself exists in community. Fundamental to Christian doctrine is that God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We most fully and properly image are his image in community because that's who he is. That's how he exists. Unity of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in diversity is seen in the created unity in diversity of humanity. It's reflection in human beings of both unity and diversity is part of what it means for us to be created in the image of God. And just as the Trinity, right, is an unfathomable mystery, right? You try to explain it, but you really can't get at it. The reality is the mysterious and irreducible uniqueness of each 
individual joined together in human diversity serving as the image of God is somewhat mysterious. The biblical vision of humanity is a multiplicity of persons in one body. Just as God is three persons united in one essence. That's what it means for us to be in community. And so I've got another theological point on this second C. Uh, we are a Presbyterian, and so that means we hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith and its uh, catechisms. Uh, if you don't know what the Westminster Confession of Faith is, I have another book to recommend to you. It's this one, Confessing the Faith by Chad Van Dixon. <laughs> um, so here's the thing. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 26, talks about what it calls a chapter on the communion of the saints, meaning Christian community together. And here's what it says in the first paragraph. It says, chapters 26, verse 1, all saints who are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by his spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him in his graces, in his sufferings, in his death, in his resurrection, and in his glory, and being united to one another in love, they participate in each other's gifts uh, and graces and are obligated to perform those public and private duties which lead to their mutual good both inwardly and outwardly. Now, right, I, I am pretty sure, I'm still researching this, but I'm pretty sure they were not thinking in the uh, 1600s when this was written. They were not thinking about the image of God when they wrote this. But I think they should have been. I think they should have been because, you know, Glenn and myself as pastors in the PCA, we take a vow, right, in our ordination. We are asked, do we, do we believe, do we hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith, this is the question, as containing the system of doctrine that's taught in the scriptures? We got to say, yes, we do, if we're going to be in, in this club, right? We got to say yes to that. But that includes this chapter. And I have never heard a question asked of a pastoral candidate in the PCA, in our denomination, how he intends to help his church carry out the implications of this paragraph in the church. How, how, I'm, we, we ask all kinds of questions about Sabbath and about all, all kinds of questions. But we never ask the question, how do you, we, do you, do you believe that, that we are obligated, being united together in love, that we are obligated to perform the same public and private duties which lead to mutual good inwardly and outwardly? So here's the, here's the thing. Here's the second paragraph. They say, it's the duty of professing saints to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in performing such other spiritual services as help them to edify one another. It is their duty also to come to the aid of one another in material things according to their various abilities and necessities as God affords opportunity. This communion is to be extended to all those in every place who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. It is, right? This word love again, right? United to one another in love. They participate in each other's graces and gifts. They're obligated, 
right, to uh, perform these duties. And why, why is it that the confession can say theologically that Christians are obligated to perform these duties for one another in community? It's the same, same reason and the same point I'm getting at. It's because we are made in the image of God. Because this is actually one of the ways that we image God. Ultimately, Chad Van Dixon says in his book, this love for each other cannot be restricted to what we have. It needs to encompass who we are. Mutual, mutual edification should be one of our goals. Why is that? Because within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, they boast about each other. They boast about each other. If you read your Bible, you will find that the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The son says about the father, he says, I didn't come to do my will, but I came to do the will of the one who sent me. He says of the spirit, I, he's the, he says, I'm, I will send you the spirit, the, the advocate, and, and he, won't, uh, he will lead you into all truth. He won't speak of his own authority. He will glorify me, the father, the son, and the spirit. Biblically, they boast about each other. And in our mutual edification, in our mutually building one another up, we are actually imaging God. And so when we think about Christian community, we... When we think about Christian community, we should be thinking about what does it mean for us to image God together? What does it mean for us to image God together? And so we move on to the third C. And here's where it gets a little challenging, I would say, and, uh, and maybe even a little bit murky. And this is, this is kind of culture is, I would say, the blind spot in cultural intelligence. It doesn't really make sense, right, because it's cultural intelligence, right? And so you think culture should be the thing that's most clear in cultural intelligence. But I would say it's actually the blind spot. Um, the, the content, we said, of cultural intelligence is love. The theological focus of cultural intelligence is, is imaging God in community. But the blind spot in cultural intelligence is culture, right? What is culture. I mean, right, have you ever tried to offer a definition for culture? That's what we use it all the time, right? You, you hear people talking about the, some folks are, are cultured people and some folks are uncultured people, right? And that itself is a culturally conditioned statement, right? So how, what, what does culture mean? Is culture the way we talk? And the way we dress and the way we behave is culture about our common physical traits and, and characteristics. Is, is culture about having shared values uh, together? Uh, is, is culture, is culture uh, just something that, that shapes us? Or, or is culture something that, that we have a part in shaping and forming ourselves? The fact of the matter is our sense of identity is, is often formed in culture and our assumptions, our assumptions about what's right and what's wrong are, are culturally conditioned. And so it would be good to know what culture is. And so here's a picture. This is really helpful. I'm going to spend a little bit of time in, uh, in this 
culture and the things that make uh, things that make cultural intelligence so challenging. And as I said, I'm kind of combining the thoughts of several authors who've who've written on on culture and and its impact. And the most the most helpful visual description I have comes from that book I already mentioned, David Livermore. He has, when he's describing culture, he uses an iceberg, right? And he says, if you really want to know, understand what, what culture is, you, you need to have a picture of, uh, of an iceberg. Uh, he says, you know, you've got some things in culture that are called cultural artifacts, right? Um, cultural artifacts are the stuff on the top. They're the stuff that's above the water in the iceberg. It, on the surface, he says, we can, we can observe a culture in light of its artifacts. Artifacts include things like food and, and dress and eating habits and gestures and, and music and economic practices and, and use of, of physical space, um, uh, order of worship in the church, uh, art, um, it's on and on. All of the things that you see and you can observe about practices, those are the cultural artifacts. Those are the things that are, uh, that are above the surface. And what do you know about an iceberg, right? I mean, the danger in an iceberg, of course, is that most of it isn't above. <laughs> most of it is not what you see. Most of it is below the surface. And so, the, the cultural artifacts are the part of the ice iceberg that's visual, visual, sorry, visible above water. And so, second thing he says, that's, that's beneath the surface that you, you don't really see very well are cultural values. These are actually, he says, the most significant aspect of a culture. And this is what makes cultural intelligence so challenging. Because it's stuff you really can't see. You, that's not necessarily plain and obvious to you when you are engaging the other. You can tell that folk are different, right? You can look and you can see differences, but you, but you, cannot, in, you cannot necessarily just by looking observe the values and understand the values. Culture represents the way a group of people, says the way a group of people organize uh, their ideas and their lives. It's, it's what lies beneath the surface of what we think about how we live. So it's not even about what we think about how we live. It's what is informing what we think about how we live. And these are often, as he says, assumed and unconscious. You don't have to think about what is the underlying, you know, right? You don't, you don't, you don't go places and make decisions saying, what is the underlying cultural value that I'm exercising right now as I decide to do this thing with this person? Right? Nobody does that. Right? It's just, it's just assumed, right? It's, it's unconscious. Beliefs, he says, that are taken for granted, uh, and that includes, it includes perceptions about life that we think everybody's supposed to have. These values that we all have, because we are all formed by our cultural immersion, whatever that is, and it includes perceptions about life and values that we inherently just assume everybody's supposed to have. 
Everybody's supposed to act this way. Everybody's supposed to think this way. Everybody's supposed to think that what you just did was rude. Everybody's supposed to think that what I just did was a good thing to do. Right? I mean, I, you know, I said this uh, to my church uh, the other day in a different context, but you know, right? You, you know how when you're driving in traffic, right, and you decide, you know, I'm going to be a generous person today. And, the, you know, there's some, the lane next to me is all backed up, right? And so I'm going to let somebody get in front of me. I'm going to, I'm going to slow down and I'm going to, to be generous, Erwin, and they're going to get in front of me. And what is my expectation? That's right. My expectation is when they roll up, they're going to do one of these. In the, Right? And what happens, right? What happens when I don't see the wave? All of a sudden, I'm not generous Irwin anymore. I'm like that, that ingrateful so-and-so, right? That's just an assumption. Like this is, this is I, am, I am imposing the value on that other driver, right? I mean, that's a simple example, but it's real, right? I'm, anytime I get upset about things like that, right, I'm imposing my value on the other folk, right? Whatever it is. And so the, that, that's how it is with, with cultural values. We take them for granted. And everybody's supposed to have these values. Uh, and they, the, these cultural values and messages, they come from the groups to which we, we belong. And they give us information about what's meaningful and what's important. They tell us, here's the, they tell us who we are in the world. They give us a sense of our identity. They tell us who we are in the world and in our relationships to others. And then at the bottom of the iceberg, at the bottom of the iceberg is individual personality. Um, and so at the deepest level of the iceberg are the individual traits and experience that are experiences that are unique to each person. As we... Um, this is Livermore, I'm quoting here. He says, as we reach across the chasm of cultural difference to express love to the other, we will encounter universal realities that we share with all humans, cultural norms shared by large group of people, individually, individual personality traits that are unique to each person. And so you've got to actually right, dive pretty deeply to get into these individual personality traits. So this is, this is why it's love, right? Because the work of love, the work of love in cultural intel intelligence is to explore beneath the surface, is to explore beneath the artifacts into the values to the person made in the image of God, just like all of us are. And that's what makes it a little murky. Because we, I just, right, I just want it to be easy. I just want it to be easy. I just want, I just want you to like me and me to like you. Right? I just want it to be simple. But the reality is, it is somewhat complex. And so, if this changes like I expect it to. Oh, yeah, I forgot. There's another one. Um, human nature. <laughs> Uh, which he says is at the very top. <laughs> this is, right, so he says human nature is at the very top, which is, and again, right, we all can see we're humans, right? We all, this is what we all share together in common, that this is at the very top of even the, the artifacts is human nature. We, we're all people, right? 
Um, so now let's move. All right, so left the iceberg up there with with uh, nature artifacts, values, um, and personalities. And as I said, right, one of the big challenges in moving across cultures is you can see the artifacts, and and they can actually resemble uh, the artifacts you think should be there. He gives this example, right, uh, uh, Livermore again in his book about a McDonald's. He says, he says, you can travel many places in the world and see people lining up at McDonald's, right? McDonald's is an international corporation. You can see people all over the world lining up to eat at McDonald's. He says, an American shopping at, stopping by McDonald's in Louisville, say, is probably just going to get uh, a fast and inexpensive meal. Right, they're just trying, they got a few bucks, dollar menu, you know, get something to eat and be on their way. He says, however, right, a Russian stopping by McDonald's near Moscow may well be trying to show his status. He can go to the American rest, fast food restaurant in his country. Right? So, so this is one of the reasons why, right, you gotta actually get below, uh, the surface, because things are not always as they, uh, appear. Uh, it helps us to kind of slow down and observe what's happening and move us toward trying to interpret the meaning behind what we observe. And so things like this actually require uh, awareness. So I'm going to talk about four things. I'm going to give four definitions. Actually, I'm going to give two definitions here. All right. Here's a definition of culture. All right. All right. Culture... Right, we talked about these artifacts, values, and personality, right? And so, if you just want to, just a straight-out definition, here it is. And this is a combination of what, of several authors. Culture is what human beings make of the world, in the sense of the the things that we make, from from the raw material uh, of nature, and the meaning that we make in this world. It and this making includes behaviors that are learned, uh, ideas that are reinforced, that reinforce beliefs and values and products artifacts that reinforce the beliefs. And so uh, the next thing I'm going to define for us is identity. Um, so what is it? What is identity? What is my self-awareness? It's a person's understanding of, of who he or she is based on these socially constructed in culture, meaningful categories that people use to describe themselves. And so this is important because um, the fullest expression of awareness occurs only when we go down beneath the surface to these areas of identity and actually entering in and, and empathizing with other people. And so four subcategories I want to talk about. So here, um, these are four subcategories in cultural dynamics that people experience in one way or the other. And so, right, I, I will admit I'm going to move, I'm moving on to the, to the, to the close. So I'm just going to touch on these so you might not be satisfied with how much I go into explaining them. But if we're going to really grasp cultural intelligence and culture, we got to get these four things. First is belonging, 
Right? Belonging is an individual's community experience of being at, at home among friends as a co-owner and creator of that community. It includes an individual's sense of being rightly placed in specific community due to feeling welcome, valued, comfortable, or self, and so, safe, rather. And so, so Peter Block was an author. He has a book. He says, we find community every time we find a place where we belong is where we find community. And so you got to ask the question. I have to ask the question at City of Hope. Grace DC has to ask the question, right? We got to, what is, what is the culture of our church? What is the culture of Grace DC? What is the culture of, of, of City of Hope? What are the values in our church that, that we take for granted that are below the surface? What does it take for an other to say, I belong here? That I'm actually welcomed here. I actually, this is, these are my folk. These are my people. I, I fit here. What does it take for somebody to say that? Yes, ma'am. I guess I have a clarifying question. Sure. Is the premise that all cultures are equally worthy of respect? That's a good question. So, um, in a sense, in a sense, right, um, the simple, simple answer, well, it's not a simple answer, it's because it's, it's nuanced, right? You can say, you can say, right, the standard for, for all of life is the word of God, is God's word, right? And so we assess, we assess culture, we assess people, we assess life by that standard. And so, and so the further away, Right? The further away a culture is from what God says is good and beautiful and, and loving and reflective of his image, right? The, the, <clears throat> the less it's imaging God, the less, uh, the less we want to embrace aspects of it. So here's, so, so what I mean is, when, when Christ redeems, right, he redeems culture too. When he comes in, he came in to a, right, Christ enculturated himself. He came in to a culture and he, right, and he was, he was fully Jewish, right? Um, and he critiqued the culture, right? And he also pointed it to where it was reflecting God. Right. And so, so it's just, I would say it's the same thing that when, so I don't, as an African American in a cultural context, right, I come to Christ, I don't throw my whole culture out with the bath water, right? Um, but I, but I now have different eyes to critique it. I now have different eyes to say what is what is good and valuable and what needs to be discarded. And so, I don't know if that, so, so I'm trying not to. So not all cultures are equally worthy of respect and it's okay to pass judgment on the culture as long as it's the word of God and your benchmark. Yeah, so what is your, what's your stand, what is my standard, so I have to ask, right, is, my, is my standard for critique my expectation of what's good? Culturally, I have to do that kind of assessment, and that's that's hard work, you know. So I, I, I said to our church, as a, you know, uh, cross-cultural, diverse church, that we get the privilege 
here's a particular privilege we get in what we're pursuing. Um, Because we're going to step on each other's toes. Because we don't speak the same language. We all speak English, right? But there are, there are differences. We come from different, different backgrounds. And so when I'm offended, right, I get to ask the question, okay, why am I offended? Is it, is it because there is uh, something that is violating God's standard here that has got me offended? Or is this just a preference? God, for the sake of unity in the church, God would have me die to. Is it just a preference or is it something that strikes at the heart of the faith? And that's work. That's so, so, so that's a long way of saying kind of yes to your, <laughs> to your question, but wanted to kind of nuance it is to say, you know, we can, we can say like, right, um, it is fairly easy to look and see what right radical Islamic militants are doing, creating, designed to create a, a caliphate and desire and, and the brutality and we and say that is corrupt culture. <laughs> right? We don't have to we don't have to like say, well we need to really respect that exp- that cultural expression. Right? But we know it's corrupt because we see what God holds up. His word, and we rightly say no. <laughs> so, in your culture, you value women like cattle. I can condemn that, but if I don't like your music, I say that to myself. Excuse me. So, right, if you if you say right, because we we get right, we get the dignity, value, and worth of a person by the declaration that God has made us in His image. Each person, as as one of the authors says, each time when you realize that you should. You should, you should go up to the next person you see and say, your majesty, you know, because that's how much value and dignity and worth an individual person has. And when we see that being oppressed and suppressed and, and destroyed, right, that's, we, we critique that. We continue that, yeah. So, yes, but, right, but my music, you know, you know, that, that's more along the lines of, of a preference, right? So, so yeah. Thank you for that for that question. So, so now, be, right? Belonging is something we all actually need <laughs> and desire. Um, um, and we, and as I was saying, we've got to ask the question, right? What is it? What does it take for somebody to say somebody who is another to say, I actually. Um, Belong here. Have you, are you all familiar with, uh, Brene Brown? Anybody ever heard of Brene Brown? Uh, I highly recommend her stuff. She's got a book called Daring Greatly and a TED talk that's probably been seen like 80 million views by now. <laughs> you know, um, but she says, but she says belonging is the kind of connection that explains why we're here, right? Connecting with others, belonging gives purpose and meaning to our lives. That's culture, right? Um, and this is important. It's important to talk about belonging because in order for us to experience belonging, you actually have to embrace vulnerability. 
That's the second thing, right? Uh, and so vulnerability is, is the willingness to be susceptible to physical or emotional attack or harm as a definition. It can be described as kind of being all in, engaging the risk of pain for the sake of connection with another or others. Um, so in order, and I'm quoting from Brene Brown again, she says, in order for um, an individual to intimately connect in community, a willingness to be seen is necessary. All right, and she says, vulnerability is at the core, the heart, and the center of meaningful human experiences. And so what, what follows from this is that when we think about community, right, we're still community, image, and God, when we think about community, community's practices then need to be practices that, that encourage vulnerability, that encourage people to actually be willing to take the risk to connect, which is another way of saying, right, I can be here and not actually connected, right? I can be here and not actually um, in involve myself in taking the risk uh, of being of being known um, and we'll, uh, yeah I'm going to skip over practices because there's a lot to say about um, practices but 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 belonging vulnerability two more here um, that come to play uh, that, that play a part in in culture and cultural intelligence and connecting and it's shame Right. Shame is a painful feeling of humiliation or distress often brought about by the fear of being disconnected or, or unwelcomed in a community. And so shame happens when I don't want to take the risk of being known. I don't want to take the risk of being vulnerable or, or I've taken that risk and I lose. <laughs> it's come back to bite me. And so uh, Brene Brown again, she says the, the crazy thing really is that about shame is that is actually the fear of disconnection. Um, and it's not a light topic. I, I bring it up because there's another guy, a uh, uh, psychiatrist, Christian guy, Kurt Thompson. He's here in Northern Virginia. Some of you guys are familiar with, with Kurt. <laughs> um, he has a book, his new latest book, The Soul of Shame. Right? The Soul uh, of Shame. And, uh, and this is what he says about shame. Um, Shame is, um, is not just a consequence of something that our per first parents did in the Garden of Eden. Like, you know, Adam and Eve, they sinned, they hid themselves, right? Because they were ashamed, right? He said it's not just a consequence of that. It's the emotional, he said, it's the emotional weapon that evil uses to corrupt our relationship with God and each other, to disintegrate any and all gifts of vocational vision and creativity. These gifts include any area or of endeavor that promotes goodness, beauty, and joy in and for the lives of others. Shame is a primary means to prevent us from using the gifts that we've been given. In other words, right, if, right, if community is going to image God, we share in another, in one another's gifts and graces, right? And if, and if shame is more prevalent than the willingness to be vulnerable, it hinders that opportunity to share in one another's gifts and graces. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and so he says, 
Um, those gifts enable us to flourish as light bearing, as a light bearing community of Jesus followers who work to create space for others who wish to join it to do so. Shame, therefore, is not simply an unfortunate, random, emotional event that came with us out of the primordial evolutionary soup. It is both a source and a result of evil's active assault on God's creation and a way for evil to try to hold out until the new heaven and earth appear at the consummation of history. And so it plays an important role when we think about community. If we really want to pursue uh, cultural intelligence, we, we have to ask the question, what kind of community are we creating? What kind of community are we growing into? Are we, are we creating room? Are we intentionally looking to be a place where people are willing to be vulnerable? Um, where, and specifically, others. <laughs> are willing to be vulnerable, meaning others not like our major demographic, whatever that major demographic is, be it socioeconomic, ethnic, or racial, or, uh, or age, or whatever the case may be. That these are questions you have to ask in, in terms of cultural intelligence. And the last one, I'll just, I'll just leave it. We're gonna, we're gonna, I'm gonna move on. But the last one is also big. It's power. Um, and, um, Andy Crouch has a good book uh, called, uh, I don't remember the main title, but the subtitle is Redeeming the Gift of Power. And we, you know, we, we have this, there's a saying, right, that power corrupts and absolute cor power corrupts absolutely. But in God's economy, power is actually a good thing. I mean, that God says to Adam and Eve, right, uh, have dominion, <laughs> rule, right, exercise authority. Right. Um, and so power is the ability to act in a particular way or to influence for a particular purpose as one participates in culture. And I don't know how often we think about all of our interactions involve some power dynamics. They involve uh, exchange of power. Indeed, when we talk about being vulnerable, if I'm going to say I'm going to connect here, right? I might be an other and I'm going to, I'm going to take the chance and I'm going to connect here. I am to be vulnerable is to be willing to give you, in a sense, some exercise of authority or power over me. Cause I'm taking the risk. You can cause me pain, right? You can hurt me, right? And oftentimes those who are Whatever the context is, if it's your job, if it's your church, the, the kind of majority group or the co they are not even cognizant of the power that they're wielding in every interaction. That there is an expression of power that is at work uh, all the time. It's never not the case. Um, and so, and so if you're really going to Understand cultural intelligence, understand loving the other, right? You've got to grab hold of this reality that power is always at play in some way, shape, or form. You know, James in um, the book of James, first chapter, right? He talks about boasting. He's talking about, you know, James is. James is, is, is hitting that church pretty hard. He's slamming them, you know, for how they're living out 
uh, the gospel in the first chapter, he talks about boasting and he, he says, you know, um, he talks about the poor and the rich. He says, the rich he says, you all need to boast in your humiliation. He says, the poor, you all need to boast in your exaltation. He says, so, so that there is, there's a power dynamic and an exchange that's taking, that's taking place in the church, in Christ. You wealthy are used to being all that, being thought of as all that in a bag of chips in the world. That's your, that is your default. You are, you are, you are thought of, you think of yourself and you're used to being in an exalted position because you got so much. You're not even aware of how much power you're wielding. You, you're used to it. But the poor, right, you're used to being at the bottom of the rung. You're used to being looked down upon. You're used to being, uh, a power for you is used to, you're used to feeling the weight of oppression because you lack. Right? He says, in Christ, the tables turn. He says, in Christ, the, the, the rich, he says, you all, your boasting is in your humiliation. Your boasting is you're not really all that the world tells you that you are. Right? The poor, in Christ, your boasting is in your exaltation. You, you have dignity. You have value. You have worth. And so, and so the challenge is, right, those kind of dynamics are, are typically at work in given churches. It doesn't necessarily have to be rich or poor, but they're always, right, those, they're always in a sense, and I don't mean this disparagingly, but kind of have and have not. People who are in, I'm going to talk in just a second about core people and edge people. There always are people who are core people, right? Um, and then people who are edge people. It's always at work, and that's, that's an interplay of power. All right, let me keep moving. This is, this is the last couple of slides here on um, connection. Uh, so, uh, how do we, you know, singing together, right? Um, looks like, you know, a man's got a little problem with the way she's singing. She might be a little off tune or something, right? But um, it's like I've, this picture, Paul in, in Romans chapter 15, in chapter 14, he's been dealing with um, divisions in the church. He's been dealing with their having conflict. Um, and he starts to talk about those who are strong and those who are weak. And he's talking about people who are strong in the faith and weak in the faith. And he's saying, you know, those who are strong, you know, they know, they understand that you can eat whatever you want, that, you know, no foods are off limits to me in Christ and uh, I can I can drink wine I, as long as I don't be as long as I'm not a drunkard but there are those who are weak who say you know you should only eat vegetables you gotta honor this day you gotta you know um, and um, and he says um, he says at the beginning of chapter 15 he said we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Right? right? He says, because even Christ didn't please himself. And he quotes from the Psalms, he says, as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen on me. And so he says, may the God, and let me back up, so when he says, 
we who are strong, and so he's saying there are those who are strong and there are those who are weaker in the faith. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak or to bear with literally the weaknesses of the weak. He's not talking about tolerating people. He's not, talk, he's not like, let me just bear with you. You know, you're really irritating me, but I'm, I'm just, right, I'm just going to tolerate you, right? I'm not going to tell you what I think, right? So he's not talking about that. that it literally, uh, that word bear with in the English, that word with has to be supplied in our English translation. It's not there in the original language. Um, he's talking about, he, that's like a, he's making a cruciform statement. He's saying Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree. Christ didn't just tolerate us. He carried, he carried our sins. He, um, he took them on himself. And Paul is making a statement. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like in, my, in the body of Christ. That those who are strong have an obligation, there's that word again, right, to, to carry the weaknesses of the weak. To take them on. To, and so, and, and, and the, the goal, right, verse 6, he says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another that together with one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That in this bearing, strong and weak, right, bearing, that the, the point is, the prayer is that the God who, who gives endurance and encouragement grants his body to live in such harmony with one another that together, he's using the word, with one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 7, therefore welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. Right? That, that is, um, that's the connection. So here are two, there are two, two case studies. I'm going to run through these quick, uh, quickly. These actually come um, out of a book called um, Against All Odds, The Struggle for Racial Reconciliation in Re Religious Organizations. This book um, uh, was published in 2005. It was um, some sociologists, some Christian sociologists. They, they went and did case studies uh, with Four, with six um, organ, six combination of churches and uh, parachurch organizations who were who were or who desired to become more diverse, more culturally intelligent, culturally aware, and so I want to just kind of look at two uh, two of them. So the first one, interestingly enough, was. Um, Name of the church, well, these are, these are pseudonyms, so. <laughs> um, Messiah Church, right? And this is, this church um, wanted to grow in diversity, but it's a predominantly Filipino church, a predominantly uh, Filipino congregation. And so they became diverse um, through, they said, diverse friendship networks of the founding pastors. So the founding pastor was Filipino. Right? He had a growing um, network of uh, diverse friends, and it grew more diverse 
um, as more and more people became excited about the prospect of being involved in an interracial converse, uh, congregation. And so, I mean, what do you think, here's a question, what do you think were some of the challenges they faced? What do you think um, kind of happened in this, in, as, as these, this church was predominantly Filipino and then began to, uh, to grow uh, more diverse with more non-Filipinos coming, predominantly white and, and black in terms of the others. What do you think? Language barrier. Language barrier. Language barrier. Yeah. Right? It's so. Been also, I mean, easier for the younger people in the church versus the people who have been at the church. So, kind of right. generational gap thing with second generation probably being more uh, open, right, to, yeah, to welcoming in non Filipinos. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Other thoughts? Yeah. What? So maybe the Filipinos feel less identified with um, the church as as the church starts to change demographically, and some of them maybe start to start to leave. Yeah, yeah, those are good. Those are good thoughts. It, like some of them happen, but they all are potential um, things that can happen in a case like this. Here's uh, what they say. Despite the efforts of the church to be warm and embracing, the biggest obstacle in its five-year history seems to have been that many of its members feel socially isolated at the church. And this has caused many of them to leave the congregation. All right, so here, right, of the challenge, they, they interviewed several um, non-Filipinos. The sense of isolation was much more acute among the non-Filipinos who had joined the church, right? Um, they said the vast majority of them spoke about struggles and frustrations relating to others in the church and not feeling socially connected, right? Um, and so of the Filipinos that they interviewed who um, mentioned having difficulty with others, um, it wasn't because they felt a lack of close ties within the church. So whereas the, the non-Filipinos are saying, well, we don't really, we can't get connected. We, we, can't, we can't get connected. Um, um, so they even interviewed people, they even found people who left and interviewed them too. And the people who left, most of them cited lack of friendships as the primary reason for, for leaving the church. Um, and so they, they spoke openly of their discouragement in trying to fit in socially at the church. Again, right? This is just the outworking. There are cultural norms that you just take for granted, right? This is who we are. This is how we do things. And you don't realize how difficult it is for somebody who's another to come in, right, and feel like they fit in, even though they're trying to embrace the idea of being a part of a diverse church. Um, and so, 
Um, yeah, they, so they said, they said, the core of the church is made up of Filipinos who seem to have strong family and friendship groups, and they feel shut out of, of the groups. Um, and so that's why folks left. Uh, let me see anything else here I want to read. Um, yeah, so here's, here's one thing uh, that's interesting that speaks because, right, people, others come in with their cultural um, values as well. So it's, um, it appears that many of the non-Filipino church members were seeking more one-on-one, quote-unquote, therapeutic relationships where a fairly deep level of vulnerable sharing takes place quickly, and they felt that the Filipino members were less open to that type of rela- relationship. Right. So here you had here you had people whose expectation of you know what it means for me to connect with you is I'm going to just be will, open and willing to be vulnerable and we're going to make some one-on-one connections and they're finding out culturally that's not really how it operates in Filipino culture right and so they get discouraged uh, and uh, and they leave so uh, second second church uh, as an example. This is uh, Brookside Church, a large, predominantly white congregation. And here's the deal at, uh, at Brooks, Brookside. They have, a, they have three services. They got uh, uh, an 8 o'clock service, a 9.30 a.m. service, and an 11 a.m. service. Right? Now, that's already, right, that's a cultural commitment. <laughs> Right, <laughs> um, but um, the 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 eight and the nine thirty service are overwhelmingly white, right? Um, and they serve about a thousand people in those two services. The third at eleven is very mixed ethnically, about a third white, a third uh, half Latino, and the remaining are African Americans, and they get about three hundred people. So it's a Pretty si- fairly sized um, uh, worship service, right? And that third service, they said they do things differently. Their worship music is a, is is uh, is different than the eight and the and the uh, and the nine thirty. And this happened because uh, the church's pastor uh, led an intentional congregational change from a majority white congregation, most of whom didn't live in that community to a congregation that more accurately reflects the diversity of the congregation. And so he asked, he, in doing this, he asked a significant core number of white members of the church to make a three-year commitment to attend the 11 a.m. service. Um, and many did. And so, same question. What do you think were the challenges? What do you think... Uh, happened um, at uh, at Brookside. People could have just picked up their sort of like friend group from the 930 and just mm-hmm. popped into Easy to pick up there. Very easy to just say, I must, right, we'll make a decision, some of us together, we'll do it, <laughs> right? So I don't, I'm not really kind of breaking out of my kind of connections to form new ones. Yeah, and that, right, that's very natural. I mean, that's, that's natural. I, I want to go 
with my friends, right? If, well, let's do this. Well, let's do it together, right? Yeah. Other, other challenges that you think it might have presented. Yes. Yeah. And so that that actually is going to come up in some of their conclusions that I'm going to share with you. And so, I mean, so what they found, what happened was um, people pretty much um, stayed with their three year commitment. They made the commitment. They stuck to it. um, But a lot of the folks after the three years went back to, uh, to 8 a.m. and, uh, and 9.30 a.m., um, but a lot, a lot didn't. Uh, and so, so it's interesting. Here's, here's what they said in their interviews um, with the 11 o'clock service members um, that was a marked difference of that diverse service they said that they reported the most powerful draw for them in the service was the atmosphere of love and acceptance. And, and actually, that atmosphere of love and acceptance first even started with the artifact, the perception. What, you, what do you see when you, when you come in? Right? And so um, they said the words comfortable and accepted often came up in their interviews, a sense of feeling at home and being accepted, they said, seemed particularly salient for the Hispanic members who um, were, uh, were interviewed. Uh, and so they say the feeling of acceptance and being at home that seems to have come with racial diversity is significant, uh, that, it, that it seemed, particularly at this place, to be a draw, a main draw for non-whites and interracially married couples um, at all of the churches that they study. So um, here's the last thing. Here's, 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 this is kind of the, the, uh, the wrap-up, these, these last couple of slides. Is, right, things to kind of take home. Just a growing awareness in cultural intelligence that you've got to, that you've got to, you've got to have. That, that when we start talking about belonging and vulnerability and shame and power, that there is a cost. There is a cost. It's not free <laughs> to either pursue it or to be engaged um, in it. Um, and so they, uh, this is, I'm drawing from the same research, when they start talking about minorities and they said, um, Numerical minorities within a racially diverse organization bear the highest relational costs. Um, it costs them more. And so notice, I said minorities, so notice the Filipino example, the Filipinos were not the minority, they were the majority, right? So even in that context, the whites bore a higher relational cost, right? And, and many ended up, uh, ended up leaving. So you just right, be aware that there's cost involved. If people are going to be engaged in it, there's, there's cost um, 
involved. Uh, belonging is important. The, imp the ability to find belonging through friendship networks or the inability to, to find belonging through friendship networks was the central problem they found in their research. Um, that, right, we just, we're all wired for it, right? Um, and, right, there is a goal, right? We're trying to love our neighbors. We're trying to pursue people across um, these, these lines. Um, and, and it takes work to create an atmosphere that enables people to find friendship um, uh, across networks. Third, be aware, be aware, these categories, edge people and core people, that there are, there are folks who are edge people in your church. They're there. There are folks who are at the edge, and um, they are the folks who particularly um, are, are, are atypical of the organization, whatever the organization is. And the, and the reality is that, that people who are at the edge um, have a higher turnover rate than people at the core um, because right, uh, a higher proportion of their intimate ties lies outside of the organization, whatever it is. And so they're always being tempted, they said, to, they'll have a, there's a continual pull for them to leave the organization for another where their friends are located. Um, and so this is just, right, this is just about awareness, right? And, and so, right, so you need to be aware, right? Are we, am I, are core, among the core people, right? Am I among the edge people? But you, you just got to be aware of where you sit within the context of a church or whatever the organization is that wants to become more uh, culturally aware and culturally um, intelligent. And so, bless you. <laughs> Content, community, culture, um, and connection. It is, it is really, this is the last word, it's about loving the other. 